0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Mexican drug cartels, the subject of this conversation with Juan Grillo, who's a journalist who's studied the cartels and the whole situation in Mexico for the last 10 years, writing for major publications around the world. And he says El Narco is not a gang. It's a movement and an industry drawing in hundreds of thousands from bullet-written barrios to marijuana-growing mountains. Uh, Juan Grillo, welcome to the program. Hey, it's good to be so that'd be a good place to start. You use the word insurgency. This, this, these are not gangs, this is an actual insurgency.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a controversial term, uh, but then again it's a very uh, controversial and painful issue we're dealing with in Mexico. There's been a lot of confusion uh, about how to describe what's going on in Mexico and who these people are. Um, you know, on one side, uh, when President Felipe Calderón first took power, he, taught, he talked in terms of a war, he said there'd be no mercy to the enemies of the fatherland. And yet suddenly the Mexican government you know, turned around and said, well, actually, it's only really a criminal problem, which affects a few counties in the country. Um, on the other side, in the United States, a of confusion. When, when uh, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State and she f- first went to Mexico, she said, no, this is only a kind of gang problem like uh, we had in the United States back in the 1980s. Uh, a few guys in the Bronx, you know, firing guns or whatever. Same kind of thing. And then she suddenly turned around and said, "Oh my God, there's car bomb's going off. We've got indices of a of a criminal insurgency and uh, She used that term herself, so a lot kind of different things come out, but one thing is very clear: this is gone way beyond what we can normally understand in the parameters of organized crime and the mafia. Uh, people compare you know the Mexican cartels to to the mafia in Chicago back in the nineteen thirties but if you if you look at uh, Al Capone's worst massacre on St. Valentine's Day, he killed seven people. Whereas in Mexico, in a single massacre, this group, the CETAs, killed 72 people. And that shows the scale of devastation. You have groups of 50 guys with AK-47s, AR-15s, RPGs, attacking military bases, attacking police. An interesting comparison, uh, last year, the Taliban decapitated 28 people at a wedding in Afghanistan, a very devastating incident, uh, which, you know, 28 people, and obviously they're well-known as, as an insurgent group around the world. In Mexico, a couple of months before that incident, I covered an incident in Mexico when the settlers again left 49 decapitated bodies on a road. Hmm. So that just shows the level, you know, almost twice as many as the Taliban left. So definitely groups that have gone way beyond anything we can understand as gangs or regular cops and robbers type problems.
0: Is is this, and we're, we're all watching on this side of the border nervously uh, as, as it escalates, and it keeps escalating it seems like, is this an existential threat to, to Mexico and the government?
1: I think it is. Uh, it, it's a national security issue. Uh, it's interesting, there was a newspaper in Ciudad Juarez, uh, which was one of the cities most badly hit by this violence back in 2010, And in that year, a reporter was shot dead on his lunch break, a young man just beginning his career. And feeling so helpless, the newspaper wrote an editorial on the front page, which it addressed to the drug cartels. And it said, you are the de facto power in this city. What is it you want from us? Even in war, there must be rules. So, so, so certainly, you can see in that, you know, in that instance, there's a threat to power. You've had uh, the failure of the Mexican government to have the monopoly on, on the ability to wage war, the ability to administer justice, and that's where people make such desperate statements.
0: Hmm. Does this amount to a civil war?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at the the amount of of deaths in Mexico in the last six years, you're talking. Uh, around 60,000 deaths connected to this conflict. There's been other murders as well, but about 60,000 deaths connected to these criminal cartels, these drug cartels, which have transformed in recent years into these federations with these death squads as one part of them, and between the Mexican security forces fighting them, the army, the marines, and the police. Now, the army themselves by their own numbers say that in this period they killed, they shot dead more than 2,000 people. That obviously shows very exceptional circumstances. Hundreds of soldiers were killed and thousands of police were killed in this time. So I think in terms of the numbers, that's comparable to to many low intensity wars around the world. It's not a high intensity war, there's no aerial bombardment, uh, but there is this level of violence uh, comparable, say, to, to, to civil wars that have happened around the planet.
0: It's so especially poignant and powerful, this letter from Encida uh, you know, the, the problem is, in a regular war, as the letter writer said, you, you could negotiate with some someone. How organized are the narcos? Is is there someone you could negotiate with, one, one person or several people?
1: Well, there's uh, right now around nine major drug cartels fighting for the territory, and they, they vary in, in their methods. Uh, In some of the cartels, there are uh, head, very clearly defined head people, and they have sometimes offered truces to the government. I mean, you have, like, this uh, group called Los Caballeros Templarios, the the Knights Templar, they call themselves, based on the the, the medieval knights in the Crusades, and actually use that same imagery. Uh, They actually, you know, made a statement on TV and released video statements offering truces and saying you can negotiate with us and we will offer offer certain terms so forth. so in some cases and in other cases you have very shady groups of assassins and traffickers and you don't really know who they are so it's very hard to know you who you're talking to with these people and the position of the mexican government and the u.s government which is understandable is that you know we can have no negotiation with these people or at least the official position is that i mean it's unclear if there's been negotiations underhand with some of these guys
0: now the period you've been intensely covering this last 10 years is the period essentially of uh, Mexican democracy right before you had one party rule and you've you've written that uh, during that time during when the PRI was in power and it wasn't a real democracy or a full democracy the problem wasn't as bad it's gotten worse as the democracy has opened up
1: That's exactly right. Uh, I arrived in Mexico just as as the PRI had finished their 71 years in power. 71 years with one party, uh, operating as a kind of virtual dictatorship. You know, uh, the uh, uh, Nobel Prize-winning writer uh, Manu Bagos-Josa said the uh, perfect dictatorship, and they could simulate a democracy, but really it was one group of people in power. And they had organized crime in check. They had them in a way working for them some of the time, and that's been proved with the kind of documentation and arrests being made. But they kept control they had they put limits they put rules and limits on how much the violence could go on when the pre lost power and you had a multi party system uh there there were first a lot of celebration this is great we've got democracy, we're hoping for prosperity and security and the kind of you know hoping for a an american style democracy was what they were were hoping for many people were hoping for, and it didn't work out that way. And one reason was when you had the fragmentation of the political system, the same thing, a similar thing happened to what happened in the Soviet Union. You had people who had worked for the government becoming mercenaries of organized crime. Suddenly, where where journalists before were threatened by the government, they were suddenly threatened by drug cartels. When businessmen were before shaken down by the government, they were shaken down by drug cartels. So in some ways, you can see this conflict in Mexico is not even just about drugs. It's about political power in the country. The cartels become almost like warlords fighting for these fiefdoms, for this territory. Now, when they control this territory, and they're they're financed by drugs, they don't just traffic drugs. More and more, we can see them uh, extorting money from businesses, but also taking from some key Mexican industries. We've seen Mexican cartels stealing crude oil, stealing petroleum, uh, and up to you know billions of dollars worth of petroleum are falling into their hands. So again, it shows what a threat they are, how powerful they are.
0: And there are some areas where the cartels essentially control the, you know, have the power, uh, are essentially the state, right?
1: There's areas where you can see they're they're a kind of shadow state in a way. Uh, one interesting thing is that you know they don't have any agenda uh, like the Taliban, like the Islamists that they want to. Change the education system. They've got no interest in, in education. and are quite happy to let the state send school teachers to these places. Uh, what they want to do is control violence and control businesses. So when they want to control parts of the state, so they want to control local mayors or local governors, is to control them, to control their police forces, uh, and to be able you know, if you can control violence, you can make a lot of money uh, and move drugs. Now the areas where they're most in control are, are some places like in in parts of Michoacan, or in parts of Durango, and parts of the countryside, where they do man their own checkpoints, where they have armed guys. Often they'll they'll put them in in, in military uniform, uh, or you know, or, or sometimes you know, without military uniform, having automatic weapons and stopping cars and asking people for their ID. I mean, recently there was a convoy of journalists in the Mexican state, a few hours from the capital, uh, in in Mexican state there, and they were stopped by a group of what looked like soldiers at first, and they noticed there were soldiers wearing tennis shoes. So they're not really soldiers, you know, they're really these are cartel guys running a checkpoint.
0: And it is distressing the porousness of the division, you might say, between the police and the uh and the cartels, right? You, you sometimes get your training from the police, and then you move over and, and join the cartel.
1: Yeah, well, that's exactly right. Uh, I opened the book with an interview I did with a, a cartel assassin, where well, he was actually the head of assassins, who spent 20 years inside him. I interviewed him in a prison in Sierra Juarez, and he described how he first joined the police force when he was 18 years old, uh, spent two years there where he learned to torture, and he learned to kidnap and then he decided to, to sell these skills to the cartels directly uh, and and he spent years killing many more people than he could, he could count i mean a very brutal life and, and he described this to me described even how he decapitated victims uh, and uh, now though now he said that he's uh while being in prison he claimed to have discovered god uh become a, a, an evangelical born again christian which is you know uh, why he's now looking for redemption
0: Tell me a little bit more about this man. I think his name is Gonzalo.
1: That's correct, yes. It's, well, I was uh, doing a lot of work up in Ciudad Juarez. Uh, in my time covering the drug cartels, I realized you had to try and talk to the gangsters themselves, to the criminals themselves. The, you know, One thing you could do was go to crime scenes and see the dead bodies. One thing was talk to the American agents or talk to the Mexican police or soldiers. But you only got part of the picture, uh, and to get the full picture, we have to talk to these guys. Now, they're obviously, uh, talking to them is not saying that you're justifying their action in any way. It was interesting to try and see their life stories, see how they've been recruited into this. So I spent a lot of time uh, looking to link up with cartel guys in, in different ways. And one way was to go into prisons and get to know prisoners and uh, and, and find out why they were inside and get them to introduce me the other prisoners who were closest to cartels. Eventually, got to this guy Gonzalo, who had been arrested about a year before I met him. Uh, when he was arrested, the the police smashed his teeth out to make him confess. So he had uh, he, he had a lot of missing teeth, uh, but a very powerful uh, guy with a with a with a presence. A guy, a a, a powerfully built guy, a former American football player, uh, who who had a, an obvious authority over his cellmates. He was in a cell with nine people. Uh, he had an air of authority over them. Uh, and he, with me, and I, you know, I talk to him, and, and as always as a journalist, you don't go in with the hard questions. You, you have to gain the trust of people and talk to them about you know, life and so forth till they have some trust in you and open up. And in some ways, you feel that they're, they're looking for some kind of release, that they do have a lot of pain inside themselves uh, carrying out this level of violence. Uh, and it does offer some release talking about their experiences uh, and he described this to me. It was very... It uh, had a you know, big impact trying to think about how a human being could commit these kind of crimes. You know, what was behind his eyes? How could he do this? I think that's a, that's a big question which a lot of people ask. You know, you, you see that there's 49 decapitated bodies, but, but how is it that human beings are capable of doing this thing? You know, we we think of ourselves you know, in rational ways. Uh, so I, I talked to him and I got his life story. And I think one thing which... Uh, comes to my attention is that you have these institutions of death, these death squads in Mexico. Uh, It's not necessarily a question of just bad people. It's a question of machines of death which train these young men to become mass murderers. Uh, And if we want to deal with this problem, we have to stop these machines of death uh, from from growing, continuing to produce young men, and stop the worry of these same machines of death operating uh, one day in the United States.
0: It was interesting to me, reading a, a bit of this uh, first chapter, uh, there's one wing of this jail, it seems like, or, or prison, that's uh, that's a Christian wing, and, and some people, I think, like Gonzalo, want to get in there as uh, they're seeking an escape from this. Even the people in the cartel, who may have been arrested, they wouldn't have left otherwise, they, they want to escape.
1: That's correct. And this is the, 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 uh, the city prison in Ciudad Juarez. They, uh, there was an interesting experiment in a way that the that the governor of the prison had where he divided the prison between these rival cartels so he had one wing which was all people from the Juarez cartel and this, this gang they have called the Barrio Azteca which actually that gang does exist in Texas prisons on the other side there were people from the a uh, uh, gang called the Artist Assassins who were linked to the Sinaloa cartel and these Christians were people who wanted to be outside and uh, you know from 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 neither side so they they had a, their own special part of the prison there's about 300 of them uh, and they had their own sect of born again christians they'd founded there and and among them there was was cartel assassins drug traffickers you know all kinds of uh, kidnappers and some very brutal criminals uh, and i went and talked to them and attended their masses they had they had their own services uh, evangelical services inside the prison and they were you know uh, it was quite an interesting experience they had bands who were playing a mix of of rock music and rap music and norteño mexican music and they were jumping around and sweating and kind of screaming to the heavens So, very intense experience but it is showed that you know, they believe that religion or faith could offer some way some solution to these problems and, and you have to say that it's you know many methods have been tried that haven't worked so i guess they've got a as good a claim that that's a method as any
0: and one central question that some of these men are wrestling with, uh, and uh, that all of the rest of us must wrestle with, is uh, many of these men have done unspeakable things. Can and can you find forgiveness? Is there forgiveness for that? Can you, you know, beyond rehabilitation, is there, is there forgiveness?
1: Well, I think that's, that's a, a big theological question, uh, and I think a lot of people themselves, religious people, can... Can give their own answers to that. It's something which I ask myself, uh, talking to this man, Gonzalo, when he's done these things. You know, if he says, you know, he asks God for forgiveness. You know, what does that mean? And that's an interesting question. Uh, but for myself, as as a journalist uh, and and as covering this, uh, I haven't really got any, any any great answers to these kind of mm-hmm. theological issues. Uh, but I can try and look for answers to the more uh, the more kind of physical things, the, the way to try and find more peaceful solutions to this i think one interesting or one very very necessary thing is to to stop other young people becoming the next uh, gonzalo's the next men who, who commit those crimes and if you go to these neighborhoods in juarez often on the east side of juarez or, or on uh, uh independencia is a rough neighborhood in the Mon- in monterrey area many of these places the cartels are there recruiting teenagers into their ranks. And they're often recruiting them when they're only 13 or 14 years old. They'll go to these teenagers and they'll say to them, uh, I'll give you a cell phone and I'll pay you $50 a week to stand on a corner and just send me a text or give me a call anytime any car comes past with their number plates and any time a policeman comes past. And that's the first job they give them. So the people become recruited into cartels and later on they'll give them a gun and train them to kill uh, and make them become mass murderers. And you have to ask, why is it that the young people are so easily recruited? And one reason is that the Mexican government and the Mexican society has been so absent in these areas that for many of these young people, no one is coming to them and offering them anything. No one is saying, you know, we'll give you some schooling, we'll try and get you a job. So the only people who are going to these kids and saying, look, we'll give you a chance to make some money and make something of yourself are the cartels. So there's been some interesting work recently uh, even by the u s aid has helped support some social programs in these areas to try and help these kids and i think they're very important programs. I hope to see those expand and to see those you know move around different uh, cities and really see the course out for several years uh, and become uh, an ongoing thing
0: yeah I think uh, one thing's clear in your uh, talk with gonzalo uh, you know these kids could go either way his dream was n f l that didn't work out and so he yeah, of course, he can make choices along the way, um, and he was a policeman and 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 changed over. But uh, I guess opportunity is is uh, part of the uh, the thing that needs to be done.
1: Yeah, m- most definitely. Uh, I think sometimes you know I-, I go to these neighbors and often talk to these kids, these teenagers, and you realize they really are waiting. You know, uh, there's some very good Mexican social workers as well in these in these places. There haven't been many of them. They haven't had the resources. There's some very talented social workers who know these neighbourhoods, who know these kids, who know how to reach them. Uh, and and you've you got these places, and, and these people really are there. They're quite, you know, good, open-minded kids that you can, if, if they can be reached early on, and steered away. If they're given a, you know, a bit of opportunity to to, to to stay in high school, to, to, to see this out, they they can be pushed in another direction. Uh, but unfortunately, so many have been recruited and they continue to recruited into the ranks of the cartels. And it's, you know, it's very distressing to see, as well as this uh, older killers like Gonzalo. I've interviewed some, some very young assassins, some people who, you know, I interviewed one guy who was only 14 years old and he'd already committed a double murder. Uh, you know, that kind of uh, horrific things. There's another case of, of this kid uh, uh, known as El Poncho, who was a, a very high-profile kid who who was 14 years old. He committed... He, he said he admitted on camera that he decapitated four people when he was 14 years old. That kid's actually an American citizen. Uh, he'll be in, He's going to finish his prison soon in Mexico, and he could actually be in, in the United States. So, again, it's another, another reason why it's a big broad, uh, cross-border issue is because some of these killers in Mexico are actually American citizens were born in this country.
0: We're going to take a brief break, and uh, we'll come back with Yon uh, Grillo. Um, He is a journalist and has been studying the uh, drug cartels in Mexico for the past 10 years, writing for uh, major publications around the world. Uh, And uh, he calls it, it's beyond gangs, he says this is a movement and an industry, it's an insurgency, and uh, does threaten the Mexican government. Uh, We will be uh, back with Ion Grillo following the break. Previously on Car Talk. As I got out, the driver said,
2: Hapana, hatari, Simba, Simba.
0: <laughs> I know it well. <laughs> Run like hell. There's a lion about to bite your butt. Is that, is that
1: what no, it is? I think it means don't use
2: the
0: round leaves. <laughs> <laughs> don't miss the
3: fun this week. Join us for Car Talk.
4: Saturday mornings at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Black Asian Black Pearl Asian Bistro and Sushi in North Logan, serving traditional Chinese dishes, a taste of Thai, nigiri, sushi, and sashimi. Open seven days a week. Information at 435-750-0888. This program originally aired in January. However, we do invite you to participate through upr UPRAxis at gmail.com, on Facebook or on Twitter at hashtag AccessUtah or upr.org. Back with Jon Grillo,
0: a journalist, been studying uh, the cartels, drug cartels in Mexico. He says that this goes beyond gangs. This goes to insurgency. This is a movement and an industry. Some areas of Mexico are, are almost completely controlled by these cartels. And uh, he's written a book called El Narco, Inside Mexico's Criminal Insurgency. Uh, we are on tape this uh, program, and so no phone calls, but you're welcome to comment on our website, upr.org. That's uh, upr.org. Uh, you have on your website a, a question that you have uh, you've treated a bit. I want to have you uh, face this or uh, answer this head on. Uh, you do firsthand interviews with traffickers, killers, people who have done horrible things, Are there ethical issues there?
1: Well, there is uh, various ethical issues when covering uh, drug cartels. When the drug cartels began to use uh, terror tactics for for the public consumption, like when they began to cut off five heads and roll them into a a disco, or leave 25 bodies in a town square, uh, obviously, the media were covering this straight away. And then there were some questions about if we should really, you know, this was propaganda they wanted. It was to show the terror. So how much of this could we put inside so on TV, inside newspapers, inside magazines? And that's a tough question. You know, you, you don't want to censor yourself or pretend the violence is not happening. At the same time, you don't want to be acting as a, as a voice for these cartels. Also, I think uh, when you talk to, to cartel members, uh, again, you you want to be careful about uh, being a voice for them. Uh, but uh, I think it's it's crucial to talk to them to understand why people have become part of these organizations, where they've come from, to help find the solutions to it. If we just only right. listen to what the U.S. government is saying about this, or well, the Mexican government is saying about this, we only get one side of the picture. And, and in many times, the U.S. government and Mexican government on the issue of drug cartels have been very confused and often had some very dubious tactics in their fight against them. When I mean, we've heard about the Fast and Furious, uh, which is a big scandal in which the ATF was trying to track the guns it was following to, to drug cartels in Mexico, it actually ended up allowing... Uh, thousands of guns to be sold you know, uh, knowing they were being sold to Mexican drug cartels and, and allowed them to go down and they were used in many murders so that was something which created a, a lot of criticism uh, the Mexican government has sent the military out against these cartels in many cases the military has gone into these neighborhoods uh, and hasn't really had good sources so it's gone into poor neighborhoods rounded up young people tortured them and in some cases killed them trying to find quite basic information. So you have to ask, you know, are these the right tactics that, they, that they, they're using? And to, to get a better idea of if, they're, if they're the right tactics are not, it's important to understand why kids are recruited to cartels. If you understand why the kids are so easily recruited, you might see that we're sending the military into neighborhoods uh, and, and torturing and killing kids isn't always the best solution.
0: Hmm. Now, of course, uh, the United States, Europe... We're inextricably linked to um, the problem, and, and and I think you're saying the solution as well, right? And you uh, you talk about you, that you grew up in uh, in Brighton, which uh, is famous for tourism and and other pl- uh, things, but also one of Britain's top places for drug consumption. And you you talk about how you have to think about that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, I first uh, became interested in the issue of drugs growing up in Brighton. Uh, I it was it was a place where a lot of heroin being used back in the 1980s. Uh, I knew four young men who died of heroin overdoses. So it, it, it was a place, and it was, when I came to Mexico, it, uh, it was, it, it kind of called my attention, seeing uh, how the link between a, a country of drug consumption, like England or the United States, with a country of production and trafficking. Uh, we have to ask some very hard questions about this. You know, how have we been so incapable of stopping the the demand for drugs over the last 40 years. When Richard Nixon declared war on drugs in 1971, and back in those days, he talked in very extreme terms. He said, "We know, we can completely abolish heroin. We can make it completely disappear. And in the 40 years since then, we've seen heroin use, cocaine use, crystal meth use, and obviously marijuana use you know, in very large levels. So it has to be uh, some questions about this, and look at the tactics which can be successful in reducing that demand, in reducing demand and reducing the money which goes to criminal cartels. Now There are some programs, obviously rehabilitation programs, and and a whole series of things that can be looked at. uh, And and I have to try and understand why they haven't worked so successfully.
0: Is drug legalization part of the solution?
1: Uh, Well, we've seen Colorado and... Washington state legalized marijuana. Uh, there's now uh, another seven states, they say, which could legalize marijuana in the coming years, including California, Alaska, uh, Oregon, uh, some other places. Uh, the legalization of marijuana will take money away from Mexican drug cartels. They do make billions of dollars selling marijuana to the United States. Uh, they also... Sell crystal meth, heroin, and cocaine. They also do extort and kidnap. But marijuana is important to them, and we can see that by the size of the marijuana operations in Mexico. There was an enormous farm discovered in 2011 in Baja California, which had sleeping quarters. You know, a massive industrial operation. Uh, there was also 125 metric tons of marijuana seized uh, that year in Tijuana, ready to go to the United States. So if they have this amount of marijuana for the U.S. market, it's worth a lot of money to them. Now, it's very sad that that money from marijuana, from smoking joints of marijuana, from people buying that here, pays for assassins, pays to train killers, pays to cause so much destruction. So I think the the legalization of marijuana, whatever people think about that and the other personal issues here, will damage the cartels
0: of course uh, some of the other drugs uh, there isn't even a debate on that legalization how do you how do you stop the cartels
1: well i think you have to see it as a problem of damage limitation Uh, if you are dealing with this monster of mexican organized crime uh, and if you're dealing with them right now when they get 30 billion dollars every year selling drugs to americans Americans, you're dealing with a very powerful enemy. Now, if you can reduce that, if you can reduce the uh, take the marijuana out of the equation, if you can have better rehabilitation programs and so forth, if you can reduce it from 30 to 15 billion uh, and make other improvements in, in social work, make improvements in law enforcement, and have if you have a military approach, and I think a military approach is justified. Uh, the Mexican government has got the right and the obligation to use force against these groups. And it can use military force if these guys are fighting with military weapons. But those, that military approach needs to be very well defined. I think it's no good just sending soldiers, thousands of soldiers into poor neighborhoods without clear missions. You need to know, have good intelligence to know where the leaders of these drug cartels are, and to have more, uh, better precision sending in the more elite troops to combat them when the time comes. If you carry out out a whole series of things, you could reduce the threat. Now, if you can reduce the threat so it's no longer something which threatens the national government, which threatens governance in the country, and becomes more like a crime problem uh, like that has been faced in in parts of the United States, that would be a, a, a major improvement now. It is so bad because the Mexican cartels are very confident of their power. They're not scared. They're not scared to attack attack police bases. They're not scared to attack the military to kidnap them. But if they were pushed back to a point where they were, they felt they couldn't confront the military, they'd be far less of a danger to civil society uh, and to the state itself.
0: Would is that going to take uh, resources from outside uh, Mexico? Significant resources?
1: I think. The, the, the international community can help it in many ways i think the the united states itself can help not necessarily in in giving black hawk helicopters to the mexican military uh, but in helping in the institution building it's crucial for mexico to try and build a police force which works you have to stop the impunity you have to you know right now there's this horrific levels of impunity in, in some states only 1 in 20 murders are solved i mean that's a terrible no. number so you really need to have police who can investigate uh, and can create cases which will stand up in court so the united states can you know can give you know has got obviously a a, a long history of law enforcement and effective law enforcement and can can help trade also the, the social work and like i mentioned earlier the U.S. aid, which is now going to programs in these neighbours, is 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 very helpful. Uh, but Mexico itself also obviously obviously has a lot of work to do in in building these police forces. We've got a new administration in Mexico, the PRI PRI returned to power, and they've uh, uh, now announced a six-point security program to reduce violence. The first point is a national crime prevention program of the type I was talking. So that's a a good sign. They also have some ideas to create a new uh, gendarmerie, which is kind of military-style police force. So we'll, we'll see if this, if this works or not. They do have now a program and, and some kind of objectives to reduce the homicides, reduce the killing.
0: If mm. You just joined us. We're uh, talking this hour with Jon Grillo. He is a journalist, has written for uh, many major publications, and has covered the uh, narco-traffickers, the uh, drug traffickers in Mexico. He says that uh, El Narco is not a gang. It's a movement and an industry, drawing thousands, hundreds of thousands, from bullet-written barrios to marijuana-growing mountains. And he says this is potentially an existential threat to the government of Mexico. And uh, he has talked to many of uh, the people in the drug cartels. His book is El Narco. And uh, we'll be back after a brief break with Yon Grilo.
4: This week on This American Life... When David Sedaris was young, his parents sent him off to a special Greek summer camp. He hated it.
3: There was one boy at camp I felt at ease with. Like me, he used his free time to curl in a fetal position, staring at the bedside calendar upon which he'd X'd out all the days he had so far endured.
4: (laughs) How they became the bitterest of enemies, and other stories of the cruelty of children, this week on This American Life from Public Radio International. Saturday mornings at 3 and Sunday at 2.
3: Waste not. Leaking toilets are the number one cause for high water bills. You can place a few drops of food coloring into your tank to check for leaks. If the food coloring appears in the bowl without flushing, you have a small leak.
0: Waste not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at
4: loganutah.org slash publicworks. We would like to remind you that this program aired originally in January. However, you still can participate at upraccess at gmail.com, on our Facebook page, or on Twitter at hashtag AccessUtah, also at upr.org. Back with Yon Grillo,
0: and we're talking about the drug traffickers in Mexico. Uh, Young Grillo has uh, covered them for uh, 10 years or so, writing for many major publications, and his book is El Narco, uh, Inside Mexico's Criminal Insurgency. As the title implies, he has talked to many of these uh, drug traffickers and uh, has got an inside view. He has a very interesting uh, view, inside view of the problem and also the solution. We're talking about that and uh, the U.S. and Europe's connection to the problem as well on the program today. No calls, we're on tape, but you can comment at upr.org, upr.org, and we hope that you will. I'm uh, wondering, are there any analogs to this that we can learn lessons from? You know, Colombia at the height of their problem. Uh, you mentioned Russia sort of uh, coming into democracy and having problems. Or, uh, or is Mexico unique in this respect?
1: Well, yeah, there certainly are these comparisons, and I think the the comparison with Uh, Colombia was useful, that was kind of like setting off an alarm bell in the early days was always becoming the Colombianization of Mexico. Uh, Oh my God, Mexico is becoming like Colombia. But now, in fact, Mexico has developed its own point of reference in terms of of how bad a drug war can get. Uh, And in many countries in South America, like in Argentina and Peru, you get these groups of drug cartel thugs often linked to the Mexicans and they start saying, oh my God, it's the Mexicanization of Peru, the Mexicanization of, of Argentina. So it's become its own point of reference there. Now, like I say, Mexico is a, a very interesting case study to learn from because there's many other countries around the world with similar problems. Now, in this hemisphere, we see a lot of places like Brazil, uh place in Central America, in the Caribbean, where you also have many young dispossessed people who can be recruited by these organizations and and weak governments who can fall prey to them now i was also i've been recently in honduras and it's in a terrible state honduras now has the worst murder rate on the planet mexican drug cartels are very active down there uh, there's also other organized crime from honduras and a very fragmented uh, military and police there so again a real flashpoint for the future in an area which has kind of gone off the radar uh, the United States was very interested in Central America back in the 1980s. It was uh, supporting certain governments or, or, or movements down there. And now it's kind of gone off the radar, and this area has become more violent.
0: So, and some of the, the, the gangs or the insurgencies that were developed then, uh, they continue? Have they grown?
1: The ones from, the, the, For, the, from 1980s? the From the 80s, yes. Well, I mean, in the 1980s, it was often, you know, really it was, you know, then it was a question of, uh, of communist guerrillas uh, and, and, and communist governments or military dictatorships uh, and, and kind of right-wing movements. So then it was a very politicized you know, 20th century conflict. One interesting has been this transition from these politicized conflicts to these you know, criminal groups, criminal militias. but often they're sometimes they're the same people. Uh, there's been members of uh, various militaries who have defected to drug cartels. The group, the Setas was founded by people who defected from the Mexican military, but they also recruited people from the Guatemalan military, called the Caibiles. Now they were elite commandos who had fought uh, leftist guerrillas back in the 1980s, uh, and they were, you know, very ruthless and very well trained. So they were, you know, very valuable mercenaries for the Mexican cartels, and they might even have started the technique of decapitating, beheading victims because they used to do that in the civil war. Now a lot of also another. Problem is that a lot of the weaponry, which has been sitting around in warehouses uh, for many years, is now being stolen and used by the drug cartels. So we have many fragmentation grenades being used in Mexico, which they found them and traced them, and realised these are actually grenades which were supplied to governments in El Salvador and Honduras by the United States back in the 1980s, sitting around in warehouses for years and, and being stolen. Uh, there's also uh, now an increased use of RPG-7s, these uh, rocket-propelled grenades, which they fire from their shoulders, we're seeing guys with those RPG-7s attacking vehicles in, in cities on the U.S. border, and these are RPG-7s being stolen from militaries in Honduras and other parts of Central America.
0: I'm interested in how this uh, how this happens, and and where, what are the factors that make it fertile ground for for this? Uh transition to happen, it seems to have happened in several nations, you know, gangs, organized crime, morphs into death squads, morphs into insurgencies.
1: Yes, it's a very uh, important question, I think, for the 21st century. We have to redefine how we think about the threats there are in the world today. Uh, Many people are still much in in this kind of mindset of the 20th century where you have you know, people fight against the government because they believe in something. You know, believe in communism, they believe in Islam, or believe in some nationalist cause. Uh, but more recently, we've had the, these groups emerging with a very different agenda. Uh, and I think we can look at some factors that have happened in the world since the end of the Cold War. You know, first, there's the problem of a lot of you know, military hardware around and a lot of new military hardware being created. Uh, now, there's a lot of you know, these weapons like AK-47s. AR-15s, which, which can be used to do a lot of damage, they're also available in many places. Now, in the case of Mexico, they buy many of those weapons in the United States. So, so one reason or one thing driving the conflict is the availability of firearms to these Mexican cartels. There's also many other issues. Obviously, the drug trade has expanded on a global level. It's sustained in the United States. But also, there's a big drug trade in, in Europe as well. Uh, and in other countries in Latin America, in Asia, there's a, there's a growth in drug consumption. It's part of, you know, global consumerism. So that creates a lot of money. And as the drug trade is illegal, that goes to these groups, and also a way they can move money around. I mean, we live in this very, uh, uh, you know, uh, hyperactive uh, banking system around the world. So it's very easy for a group to to kidnap people in Mexico and then, you know, put that money into bank accounts and then move that to China. I've talked to lawyers of of cartel people, so they move some money in China or they move money in other parts of Asia or in Dubai or in Panama or where they want to move money to. So various factors, but also with the very good advent of democracy, and obviously that's a very good thing, which I support, but the advent of democracy, the move from military dictatorships to democracy has created states which are less less. Authoritarian, uh, and uh, where I mean, if you look at how Mussolini dealt with the mafia, uh, he you know he went to this one village in Sicily, and they started rounding up people's families and and, and rounding up their things and saying you know unless you come out and hand yourself in, uh, you know just as a suspect we're gonna we're gonna you know we're gonna take you imprison your families so these people come out and then they imprison them without trial uh, and sometimes kill them. Now obviously that that kind of thing is, is very bad for human rights, and I'm not suggesting that kind of thing, but the, the kind of societies you had in Latin America back in the 20th century, these military dictatorships, uh, it was hard, much harder for these crime groups. But now you have democracies, you have respect for human rights, and these groups can take advantage of, of those rights to spread this violence.
0: So yeah, I think we all agree, and you said it, <laughs> democracy is a good thing, but there are some sparks that can fly up. Are, are you hopeful that, the, that the, the, the democratic government now in Mexico is going to be able to... To uh, make progress,
1: I I like to be optimistic. Uh, I want to be optimistic uh, because this, you know, it's been very sad few years. I've interviewed many mothers and family members who who have lost people because of this violence. Uh, There's many, many sad stories there. Uh, One that springs to mind was of uh, a one woman who was in Monterrey uh, in her home with her two sons. One son was 15, and one was 18 years old. He was a, a philosophy student. And she was there, and an armed group stormed her house at about 1 a.m. in the morning, so that they got up, and this armed group was in the house. And it was an armed group, probably linked to a drug cartel. It's very hard to know. You know, When you have these armed groups around, they, they cause a lot of terror. Uh, and these people, they started stealing things. They said to her, which of your sons is the oldest? So her elder son raised his hand, and they said, uh, we'll take him, and they took him away. And she's never seen him again. Mm. Uh, there was—they uh, originally asked for some ra- a ransom payment. She paid some money, and they just cut off after that. So a real tragic story—an 18-year-old philosophy student, completely unconnected to this, who became a victim. You know, was he used? Sometimes they—they they coerce people, kidnap people, then then use them. Uh, you know, throw them against—you know—against military, throw them against, put them in, in gunfights. Sometimes they just—you know—kill these people whatever reason but so many sad things that so you hope that cycle of violence must stop you know you want to be optimistic about this uh, talking a bit again about the issue uh, we were talking about a second ago about the idea of, of democracy with security there was a, a concept of that in colombia which has made some some progress in colombia has reduced the violence to an extent so it shows there is hope there now this concept of democratic security you know you have to have security within democratic Measures, but obviously there needs to be. Uh, the, the state does have to take a, a tough role. The government has to take a tough role in certain aspects.
0: What would you suggest to um, people listening right now? To, you know, to either to suggest to our government, U.S. government, or that we could do ourselves to affect. Sometimes we feel powerless to affect anything in in Mexico. But you know, we're all we're all watching horrified what's going on.
1: Sure. Well, uh, I think first there needs to be more discussion about this uh, among U.S. politicians and among the government. It was very sad to that in the debate on foreign policy before the last presidential election, Mexico was not mentioned. Now, it was not mentioned despite the fact that the United States supports the Mexican military through the Murder Initiative program with billions of dollars. The fact that U.S. agents have been murdered in Mexico by these cartels and that recently, cartels attacked CIA agents. Uh, they did not even discuss it. So that was that was sad to see. So there needs to be discussion about this. But I think there's there's various areas that uh, the US can look at to help on this. And, and one is on the drug policy. So we discussed about the marijuana legalization and the uh, drug policy reform. Uh, rule make, really make efforts to, to reduce this money going to mexico there is an issue on the guns on on the automatic rifles i know this is a very hot issue in the united states i know that in the united states there are a lot of other issues people have about their right to bear arms and so forth uh, but there it must be said that many, thousands of guns have been sold to mexican drug cartels and some shops have made money selling those guns so there has to be questions there about, in you know, a if whatever, you know, whatever the laws are here, um, some some more effective ways of stopping those guns reaching the Mexican drug cartels. Okay. You know, who, are the, who exactly are they selling those guns to? Uh, and also, again, the the social programs which uh, are, are very helpful, and there have been U.S. government or, or U.S. Uh, uh, non-governmental organisations supporting these kind of programmes. So I think it, it's a, there are many things. Again, it's an international problem. It's hard in the world today to deal with international problems because we are, you know, all politics is local. So often we think about things in a local way, when this is a, the drug cartels think internationally.
0: Well, we have reached the the end of our time. Uh, The book, uh, I suggest you read it, very, very good book, El Narco Inside Mexico's Criminal Insurgency. The author is Juan Grillo. He's a journalist, has uh, worked for CNN, PBS, Reuters. Uh, He's a correspondent for Time magazine, lives in Mexico City. He's studied the uh, drug cartels over the 10 years or so. The result is his reporting and his book. Juan Grillo, a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much for the time.
0: And for producer Shalane Smith-Needham, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. By the way, you can comment on uh, this topic at upr.org, upr.org. Thanks for listening.
3: Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public
2: Radio. This is Linda Kirvan for Bridgeland Audubon Society. While hiking mountain meadows in spring, you will likely encounter earthen tubes that meander across the soil surface. These are remnants of the winter tunnels of pocket gophers. Often called ropes, these dirt cores result from pocket gophers burrowing for food all winter long. They dig under the snow, backfilling their tunnels with dirt. Another surface clue to pocket gophers' presence are the hills of soil that they push to the surface. The tunnel opening in the hill is closed with an earthen plug. Pocket gophers are superbly adapted for their subterranean lifestyle. Their eyes and ears are tiny. In compensation for poor eyesight, they have long whiskers or vibrissae on their snout. The vibrissae are very sensitive to touch and allow them to navigate in their dark tunnels. In reverse, they rely on their stubby, hairless tails to guide them as they run backwards. These little rodents have formidable tools for digging. Their front claws are long and stout and powered by impressive shoulder muscles. As with all rodents, the incisor teeth grow constantly, offsetting the abrasion of biting through hard soil and roots. Cleverly, the lips close behind their front teeth, which keeps their mouth clean of dirt. These gophers really do have pockets. fur lined cheek pouches, which they use to carry food to the storage areas of their burrows. Pocket gophers are vegetarians, eating roots and bulbs below ground and stems and leaves above. Their plant diet and tunneling cause many farmers and homeowners to consider them a terrible nuisance, but pocket gophers also contribute to a healthy ecosystem. One pocket gopher will move up to four tons of soil each year, alleviating soil compaction. They bring fresh mineral soil to the surface and fertilize below ground with their droppings and leftover stashes of vegetation. Their tunnels provide habitat for other animals that live underground, and many mammals, birds, and snakes dine on pocket gophers. If you find a gopher mound, try watching quietly. If you are really lucky, as our Wild About Utah web guru, Lyle Bingham was, you may see one pop its little head out for a quick look around. This is Linda Curvin for Bridgerland Audubon Society.
3: Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll explore musical styles that developed in the USA. Blues, zydeco, jazz, bluegrass, folk, and more.
0: Sing a new song in the rain.
3: I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join me as we stay home for American Roots, the next Putumayo World Music Hour.
0: Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan.
4: KUSK-HD1-88.5 Vernal, KUSL-HD1-89.3 Richfield, KUST-HD1-88.7 Moab, and KUSU-FM-HD1-91.5 Logan. You can also find us on Twitter at hashtag AccessUtah. The time is now 10 o'clock.